0: let me invite you to turn to Psalm 6, uh, the sixth Psalm this morning. you find that on page 449 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And um, while you're turning there, I think it's good for us to rejoice in our hearts to what God is doing, continues to do uh, through this church in South Dakota. I'm so thankful for the Freibergs and the Caldwells and all who continue to minister to those who are in such desperate need. And of course, you know, I'll they were in South Dakota. Another team of us was in Ghana. And so I bring you greetings this morning from Hope Community Baptist Church in Ensalam, Ghana, our sister church across the ocean. And uh, we had a wonderful time uh, to be there. And I can't wait to be able to share with you what God is doing in that land through this church's ministry. Of course, it's good to be back home, it's good to be with you. Uh, in fact, I even, I even heard this morning, uh, I was coming into the sanctuary, and a dear sister in Christ said to me, uh, watch your back. I think after uh, thinking about it, she said, welcome back. Uh, but for a while, I was nervous. I said, what, what, <laughs> what happened with the two weeks while I was gone um, to watch my back? But I think I'm going to go with welcome back, and uh, I certainly feel welcome and excited to be here. It's good to be home, certainly. So Psalm chapter 6, or excuse me, the sixth psalm, I should say. Hear now the word of God. To the choir master, with string instruments, according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And now, Father, we ask for your help as we consider uh, this lament of David written long, long ago. And yet I think for some here, not all perhaps, but for some, these words will resonate deeply in our souls. For some, I think... Need to hear these truths. How you minister to the troubled. How you minister to the ill. How you minister to the sad. So come and help us walk walk through this with us. Speak to us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the hymn we sang a moment ago, "There Is a Fountain," was written by William Cooper who lived from 1731 to the year 1800. Uh, Cooper lived a very difficult life. In fact, one of his famous hymns, maybe somewhat autobiographical, is hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, in which he wrote, His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The bitter bud in Cooper's life was experienced by a lifelong debilitating depression. In fact, as a young man who was not raised to follow Christ, he would sit and stare out the window for weeks at a time. He would write in his own autobiography, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror, and rising up in despair. When Cooper was 32 years old, it seems that life hit the bottom and he attempted to kill himself three different times. Eventually, around the 1760s, he was committed to St. Album's insane asylum, which is probably not a place you want to live. But by God's providence, he was tended to by a believing doctor by the name of Nathaniel Cotton. In fact, six months into Cooper's stay at the insane asylum, he found a Bible lying open on the bench, open to John chapter 11, not by accident, mind you. He would write in his autobiography Having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the 11th of St. John, where Lazarus is raised from the dead, and saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears little thinking that it was an exact type of mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. Oh, he kept reading. Eventually came to Romans chapter 3, in which he wrote about that fateful day. Immediately I received the strength to believe, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me, I saw the the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel, and unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Well, I wish I could say from that point on, Cooper lived happily ever after, but I'm afraid that's not his story. He would live for the next 40 years continuing to battle debilitating depression, and even as a believer, many times attempting suicide. His pastor was none other than John Newton, not a bad hymn writer in his own regard. He once wrote a letter to his pastor saying, that loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come. You will tell me that this cold gloom will succeed, will be succeeded by a cheerful spring, and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it, but it will be a lost labor. Nature revives again, but a soul once slain lives no more. There would be, for Cooper, I'm afraid, no relief in the end. In March of 1800, he said to a visiting doctor, I feel unutterable despair. Those would be the last words he would ever speak. He would live the remaining days in utter silence, dying about a month later. Well, sadness and grief, I think to some degree, is something we're all acquainted with, isn't it? of course, most of us will never experience to that degree that Cooper had. But if you don't know what it is like to weep over brokenness or stare out a window with little to say, I'm afraid my counsel would be to you, just wait. Because trouble will come upon us. This is a world of trouble and trial, and all of us will take a voyage upon this ship one time in our life, if not more. Loss will come upon us, grief will arrive, and for some of us it will feel like a never-ending night. And the question, I think, therefore, is not if this will come, but, but when it does come, how will we endure it? And maybe some of you are experiencing it even now. And we come to Psalm 6. And Psalm 6, as I've read it to you, you can already tell is a psalm of suffering and loss. We call this a psalm of lament. In our, our little seven-week series in the Psalms this summer, uh, the, I, I want you to know that there are three different types of psalms. There are psalms of praise, which we love, and there are psalms of thanksgiving, which we adore, and then there are psalms of lament, which we'd rather avoid. the, The psalmist quite often doesn't avoid them, however, and he explains that all is not right in the world. And so some psalms are about sickness or slander. Some are about sin and sadness, oppression, defeat, drought, and enemies. And the psalmist in these psalms of lament will cry out to God, and it will be followed by an explanation of his suffering, as the psalmist seems to be trying to make God aware of the depth of the degree of the trouble in his life and at the same time seek God's aid from it. And most of these psalms will end, though not all, with an expression of confidence in God and a commitment to him despite the present circumstances. It seems to me that Psalm 6 is primarily a lament over sickness. Just think about the conditions in which David describes. He talks about weakness aching bones, troubled soul, fear of death, groaning, weeping, sleeplessness, dimmed eyesight. And just for fun, by the way, there seem to be enemies around him as well. This man is in a troubled state, and he laments that condition. As I mentioned, many of these psalms are psalms of lament. In fact, really, all the way up through Psalm 90, you're going to see lament after lament after lament. So if you just sit down and say, I'm just going to read the psalms. Um, it's going to get uncomfortable pretty quickly. You're going to find that the psalmist always seems to be hurting. He's always crying about all his problems. He complains quite a bit, it seems to me. Now, in fairness, their world was very difficult. They lived with a constant threat of war, of pillaging nations coming in. They lived in threat of plague and famine. And the good times, from what I understand, life expectancy was about 40 years it was a difficult time and a difficult place to live. And so they complained a lot, the psalmist does, largely David, because life didn't seem right. He wanted to know why is there so much suffering and pain? Why is there all this injustice and despair? In other words, life didn't simply seem hard, it seems wrong. Right To the psalmist, this is not the world in which God must have intended. And so he's constantly asking God, God, what, where, what are you doing? Why, how long, God? Where are you, God? This world is broken, God. Why will you not do something? That's the mind of the psalmist. I find that interesting because that's often not our mind. Like when we suffer, right, today in the 21st century, when someone in, in our uh, or, you know, circles, our community experiences trouble, we come up to them and we say, you know what, well, this is just God's test for you. All right, this is your opportunity to grow. And of course, that's true. But I, I want us not to forget that pain and sickness and tragedy and sadness testifies that something is wrong with the world. Life is not how it's supposed to be. And most of the time, we, we don't want to think about that. Most of the time, I, don't, I certainly don't want to preach about it. Right we want sermons don't we we want sermons full of joy and happiness we, maybe a chuckle or two that's always good a kind of a gripping story that kind of moves your heart and, and you know with a happy ending we don't want to hear about cooper dying in silence we want to hear about some wonderful redemption that uh, that he he goes on and lives happily ever after we don't want to think about suffering you know how i know this because i'm uh, perhaps Unwisely just preaching one psalm after another. I, I, when I do my sermon, uh, when I write my sermons and I kind of get a handle of the text and I kind of outline what I think it is and, and I, I'm working through, sometimes I like to listen to what other people do with the text and, and, and maybe borrow an illustration for them or maybe they are able to verbalize something I'm struggling with. I actually have a list of 15 different pastors that I like to see if they've preached that passage. Now, I don't, I don't see if, 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 you know, I listen to all 15. But do you know, of my list of 15 pastors, do you know how many preach Psalm 6? <laughs> Zero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? By the way, you know how many preach Psalm 5? Zero. Psalm 4? Zero. Psalm 7, which I endeavor to preach next week. So maybe you sleep in or something. I don't know. Zero. Right? I don't want to touch those. Right, Every, everyone who preaches the Psalms—at least those who know what they're doing—they preach Psalm one and then Psalm two, and then they jump right over to Psalm eight. That's a good Psalm, and then over to Psalm nineteen, then over to Psalm twenty-three, and on they go. They don't, certainly don't preach Psalm six. I mean, who would do that? Well, we're getting a little crowded in here, anyways, aren't we? So we'll just thin it out a little bit today. Does that work? These psalms, these psalms are kind of like a pessimistic friend. I think you know you love them, but you'd rather avoid them. You know, I'm glad it's there. I know he's there. Um, But, you know, I'm I'm not sure I want to spend much time with him. But, you know, I have this strange conviction, and I've shared it with you all the time, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful, even when we rather avoid it. So that's what we're going to do today. And I I think we need to get in here because there's this heresy, and I encountered it across, across the Atlantic this week, last week, It's pervasive throughout Ghana, but it's here in America too. That Christians should be free of pain and heartache. You ever hear that? If you're a Christian, life should be easy. I mean, by the way, even the scripture that Josh had us read this morning, I don't know if you noticed, uh, Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's difficult to kind of take that passage and then bring it to Psalm 6. And how do we square this? Because many people say, well, life's just supposed to be rainbows. Life's just supposed to be springtime for Christians. And I want you to understand those preachers are false preachers false teachers. They're liars to you. They're not preaching the gospel. But we even have, a more, a, a, I guess, a more subtle version of this that I think even comes into, like, good Bible-preaching churches that, that, that we, we say, you know, we, we just need to feel good about ourselves. And despite all that's bad, you know, I'm doing fine. I'm okay. Right? If Last month we sang a song, and we sing it quite often. You know the song, Blessed Assurance. Right? I, I was noting it because I was thinking about Psalm 6 as we were singing it. Perfect Submission. All is at rest, I am my savior, am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my savior all the day long. Well, <laughs> maybe this is confession time, but I don't know about you. But some Sundays I don't feel happy and blessed. And I can't tell you the last time where my submission was perfect. It's been a while. And to be honest, I mean, this is, it's not my story, and it's often not my song, because I am most definitely not praising my Savior all the day long. Now, I understand that song is aspirational. As we sing it, we sing it in a spirit of desire. God, this is what I want. This, is a, this song is in many ways a request. But the reality is sometimes we're hurting, and sometimes we're defiant, and sometimes the world doesn't see, seem right. And rather than our hearts being filled with happy, happy, joy, joy, we feel frustrated and confused, and at times, yes, even a little dejected. And so why I'm encouraged by Psalm 6. is at the very least, I know I'm not alone. That David, a man after God's own heart, felt this way too. His body is sick, and his soul is sad, and it seems his life is full of sin. And so consider this psalm with me as we begin with David's sin. There in verse 1. O Lord, he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. In other words, God is disciplining David, and God is disciplining him because of his sin. David is being rebuked by God. Now, it seems to David more than discipline. It feels evidently to David like this is, God is angry with him. And so David, I, I don't think his request to God is stop disciplining me, right? A, a fool says to his father, don't correct me, right? Discipline and, and love, they go hand in hand. Sometimes you love someone and you have to hurt them because you love them. Sometimes uh, you love someone and you have to say something they don't want to hear that's going to be hurtful, but you need to because you love them. Parents, we understand this. We discipline our children. It's painful, but we do it because we love them. In fact, every time an occasion arises in my family where I need to spank one of my children, I always say, one of the things I say before I spank my child is, Daddy loves you and therefore is going to spank you. It wasn't until a couple of years ago when my older son said, Dad, I never understood what that meant. Because it doesn't feel like love, right? It hurts. Sometimes love is hurting. But parents, I think we know the difference between disciplining and anger and discipline that's self controlled and loving. I think probably children know the difference too. Well, for David, who's God's child, he's, he's saying to God, you see in verse 1, Oh Lord, do not in your anger, Rebuke me. Do not in your wrath discipline me. He's praying as Jeremiah would later pray. Correct me, O Lord, but not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Now David doesn't mention the sin for which he is being disciplined. His focus is on the impact of the sin. So he's going to link verse 1, this discipline, with the severe sickness in which he's experiencing in verse 2. The question that raises, is David's sickness a result of his sin? Or is, can we bring it home, maybe? When you're sick, is that a result of your sin? And, and I think the answer to that question is maybe. Sometimes. Now, we have passages like John 9, where the apostles come to Jesus and say, "Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Remember Jesus' answer, Neither. This blindness is not a result of his sinness. We have an example of Paul with a thorn in the flesh, who is clearly not a result of his sinfulness. But then we have other examples. Like in James chapter 5, when James is, is dealing with sick uh, sickness and he says, uh, um, praying for the sick, he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So in James' mind, some, there's this link between there. Or 1 Corinthians 11, remember when they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and what was happening, Paul says, that's why some of you are ill and some of you are weak and some of you are even dying because of that sin. And so though not always, sometimes it seems scripture teaches us that sickness and sin are so. Associated, and it seems this is what David is enduring right now. We don't know what's going on in his life. He doesn't tell us the historical occasion in which this has happened. But his sin is connected to this sickness. That's why James says, before receiving prayer for healing, you should confess your sins one to another. I wonder, do you ever do that? you ever confess your sins one to another? We confess our sins to God. I don't think we mind doing that. But I think the Bible would instruct us to take a step further to show how serious we are against the sin, to actually share that with a brother or sister in Christ or a small group. And James, James by the way, is very careful. He says, God might suspend healing until you confess sin. Right? You can't, and I think the reason is you can't go on and saying God, you know, I, I, resent, I resent Lenny, right? And I'm going to continue to resent Lenny, but my back is really out of shape. Could you heal that, please? That's, that's, this doesn't work, does it? Right, God, I'm going to continue to, to give myself to greed and lust and anger, but will you please give me your blessing? I think God is probably less inclined to do so. And so David knows he has sinned, and he realizes that sin is a result, uh, uh, related to his sickness, which he turns to in verse 2. And so consider not only David's sin that he prays about, but he's going to pray to God about his sickness. Look what he says there in verse 2. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. So whatever is happening on David, he feels like he's wasting away, like his energy is gone. My bones ache, he says. And, and, and this, this bodily um, pain and misery is leading to a fear in his soul. As you see in verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. He's in agony. See, the pain of this illness is coupled with a fear that life is deteriorating. And worse, it seems as if God is doing nothing about it. If you finish verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, how long? His only hope seems to be God, and yet God seems to do nothing about it. It doesn't feel like loving discipline to David. It feels like wrath. It feels like anger. So out of desperation, you see, David has a number of requests there from verses 2 through 4. Be gracious to me, he prays. Right? He's not asking for what he deserves. A little bit of... Pastoral advice: Never ask God for what you deserve. Be gracious to me. Give me relief from what I deserve. Maybe this would be a good prayer to even start your day. You memorize that little four-six word prayer: "Be gracious to me, O Lord." Maybe start your day with that. Because of Christ, be gracious to me today. What does that grace look like? Well, in David's mind, you read on in verse two. He says, "Heal me, O Lord." And so if you ever wondered, should we pray for healing? Well, here it is. Again, this might be a verse to memorize as well. Just four words of it, perhaps. Heal me, O Lord. You could pray that. David prayed that long ago. You could say, God, just as David prayed, I now pray for me. Will you please heal me? He then asked God, thirdly, to turn to him. Verse 4, turn, O Lord, he says. It seems as if he has lost a sense of God's presence and so he says, God, come back to me. Don't withdraw from me. I don't know if you ever feel like God has withdrawn. He has not, of course. He will never withdraw. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And though I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age, our Lord has promised. But sometimes it feels that way. And maybe when health fails, we might well, a prayer for us might be, God, I just, in the midst of this trouble, I want to experience the closeness with you. So turn back to me, oh God. Or as David earlier prayed in one of the earlier psalms we saw, lift up the light of your face upon me. His fourth request there is also found in verse 4, deliver my life. Again, a prayer for healing, it seems. And then fifth, he says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. It's just plea after plea after plea. He wants God to intervene. In fact, he not only wants God to intervene in his life, he wants God to heal him. He tells God why he should heal him. You see those little, that little word for in verse 4. Save me, and then he tells him why, for the sake of your steadfast love. Because you love me, save me. And then interesting, in verse 5, he says, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol who will give you praise. So David is saying, I think there, in verse 5, that, that if I die, how can I tell others what you've done? If I die, how can I gather with your people and sing your praises? So yes, I want the pain to end. Yes, I'm about to break. But I want to, I want to get out of bed so I could go and be with God's people. I want to get out of bed so I go to church and praise you and glorify you. So he's not just asking God to work. He's telling God why he thinks it would be good for God to work in this way. And we see this throughout the Bible that, yes, you present your request to the Lord, but you tell him why you think he ought to do it. Now, if we're not careful, we would read verse 5 and think, well, David seems to offer God a deal here, right? Okay, this is God. If you do this for me, this is what I'll do for you, right? You heal me and, and what you get out of it, you get my praise out of it. But I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think David, in verse 5, is simply saying, I want to praise you. I, I, I love praising you, and if I die, I can't. It would be like saying, God, maybe you're going blind. And you say, God, don't take my sight because then I can't see a sunset or a valley or a mountain. And I love, I love to see those things. I love the gift of sight. Please don't take it. So David is saying, I love the gift of praise. Therefore, don't take my life. Because in taking my life, you take my praise. So we, might, we might pray. Maybe, maybe you would pray this. God, don't take my life. Because if you do, I can't serve you. I can't witness to the loss. And I love serving your people. I love spreading your fame. So heal me. He sees David is teaching us how to pray for healing, how to pray for the sick, appealing to God's love, appealing to God's grace. We also, of course, learn from David that as he not only prays about his sin and his sickness, this sickness is making him sad. And I think if you ever experience chronic and, or severe sickness, you will understand that sickness and sadness often go hand in hand. And so consider, thirdly, David's sadness there in verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my enemies. You see, David's drowning in his grief, isn't he? And my eyes are ringing out like a sponge. and He's lost night after night of rest. And so he prays to God, I'm, I'm so tired of this pain. I, I don't want to be sad anymore. Lord, will you take this away? I wonder if some of you can relate to that. I I don't think this sermon is perhaps for everybody here today, but I'm convinced there are some people it is for. You're just tired of the darkness. You're tired of the anguish in your soul and Once your life was full of devotion, and now it just seems like dread. And once you enjoyed life, and now you endure it, and David seems to be right there with you. And he seems to feel it, especially at night, right? When the day's busyness has quieted down, right? He feels this, on his bed, he feels this grief. He's not alone in that, by the way. One commentator put it this way, for most sufferers, it is the long watches of the night that pain and grief reach their darkest point. One man who went through a particular black period, described himself as dragging through his day's work, hardly able to function, then getting into bed at night and lying awake through the long dark hours until dawn came and it was time to begin the whole desperate process all over again. It seems that's where David is. Now remember, this is David. This is the boy who once flew a giant with a sling and a stone. This is the, the boy who once rescued a lamb out of the mouth of a lion with a club. And all of that was easy compared to the battle he now faced with his own soul. This is a victory he cannot win with a sling and with a club. This seems to be an intractable trouble. In fact, Spurgeon would write, causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, nor can David's harp charm it away by its sweet discoursings. Might as well fight With the mist, as with this shapeless, undefinable yet all beclouding hopelessness, the iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prison needs a heavenly hand to push it back. Spurgeon, by the way, knew what he was talking about. I often think of Spurgeon—you know, as an eighteen-year-old pastor preaching to thousands—a witty, brilliant, eloquent man. At times, he would weep like a baby for no reason. In fact, on one forgettable Sunday in 1866, the great Spurgeon stunned his congregation of 5,000 when he announced, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. I bring that up as I want you to understand God's people are not spared from unreasonable sorrows. We, too, flood at times our bed with tears. And yet what we do, I think especially in this culture, is we keep those miseries to ourselves. Man, we don't want anybody to know we're sad. I'm a Christian. Rejoice in the Lord always. What's wrong with me, we think. And I think it was Alistair Begg who says, we, uh, we not only apply cosmetics to our face, we apply it to our souls as well. Right? Uh, you, you know, you, you, you put the cream on your face, to minimize the wrinkles. Alright, you put you put the shampoo on your head, hoping it's miracle grow. Right? Okay? That's all right. I could go for some miracle grow. But we do that with our souls as well. That's foolish. Right? Just a little bit of cream and will cover up the blemish on my soul so no one can see the hurt that I'm really facing. And I'm telling you, cosmetics will not deal with the anguish of the spirit. Notice what David says in verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. It's interesting to me, and I think it's probably God ordained that it's obvious to all when you cry, even when you're done, right? I mean, it's hard to cry good, if you will, and not get red eyes. And I think that's God, God just built that in so we can let other people know despite ourselves that we are not doing so good. And we'll we'll take a wet cloth and we'll kind of wipe the the redness away and we'll stare in the mirror and what you'll see is those red eyes shining right back at you. We want to hide them. After all, all is at rest. I am my Savior and happy and blessed. My brothers and sisters, I think we would do well to read each other's eyes. As sorrow and distress reveal themselves in, in our countenance. And for, for some of for some some of us, listen. We we need to find our brothers and sisters. We have a sense of something not right. We need to ask about it. We need to come to them, and say, "I'm not sure what's going on, but all does not seem well with you. Can we talk about that? You anything you like? Maybe maybe we just need to to ask a second time. How are you? Because we have the, we have it down right. How are you? Answer. The correct answer is, "I'm good." We'll take, "I'm fine." We'll take blessed. That's a good one if you're really following Jesus, right? Those are, those are the right answers. Sad is not the answer we're looking for. How are you? I'm sad. Sorry, wrong answer. Okay? No, I think we probably need to say, how are you? And they say, good. And then you say, maybe over coffee. I'm not trying to imply that you're lying, but in case you want to think about it, can I ask a second time, how are you? How are you? that's what the community of faith is there for cuz just maybe under our manufactured smiles everything's not okay right and we need to share that with one another it's, these are not burdens for us to carry alone this is this is you know listen when jesus experienced this you know jesus wasn't always happy happy joy joy he said to us said uh, my soul is, is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death and by the way that's not a prayer to god he's telling that to his friends he says, guys, you need to understand, all is not well with me right now, right? He is confiding in those who are closest with him, and then he asks them to fight alongside with him. He says, "Pray with me, stay with me," and maybe, maybe for some, you find yourself weak and languishing today, and there is sadness in your soul. Maybe you feel this life is at low tide, and, and it's been a while since you've been out of the harbor. This is why you have a church. It's not to kill an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ and we need each other at those times. We have to confide in one another as we pray for each other. You see, David, David prays about his sin, he prays about his sickness, he prays about his sadness, and then he gets to the end And amazingly, in light of those prayers, David finds support. My last point this morning is David's support. Notice what he says in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I I don't know if it's as obvious to you as it is to me that the king is now out of bed, right? It seems like David is a new man. We we get verse seven, my eye wastes away because of my grief. And all of a sudden he's rebuking his enemies saying the Lord has heard me. It seems like these enemies that are surrounding David are not violent opponents. They seem more like Job's counselors, kind of piling on in the midst of his despair. And he rebukes them and says, get out of here. I'm done listening to you. Everything has changed for me. And you know why? He says it three times. It's hard to miss. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. What has he heard? Well, look at verse 8. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. God listens to your tears. You say, what what, what language do my tears speak? It's every language. You don't cry in Chinese. You don't say, oh, those are German tears over there. They all speak the same language, language of sorrow. And the Lord hears, David says. Look at verse 9. The Lord has heard my plea my plea for grace, my plea for healing, my plea for, for God's presence, my plea for deliverance, my pre, plea for salvation, God's heard. And the Lord, again, verse nine, the Lord accepts my prayer. He's heard my prayer and he accepts my prayer. And I, you know, I don't think anything's really changed for David except, he, except his own heart. He feels built up, he feels invigorated. He's, he's, he's out of bed, as I mentioned. And I think it's the very act of praying seems to have done the work in David itself. I don't think God has miraculously come and healed him at that moment. Maybe he has, but David just certainly doesn't mention it. I just think the fact that he got to commune with God and he has the assurance that God has heard me seems to have been the very thing that lifts his spirits. And once again, David is not alone. Don Baker, who's a pastor and author of the book Finding Hope and Meaning in Life's Darkest Shadow, After months of therapy and months of soul-searching, he was at his family's cottage by the lake, and he had been praying for a long time there with many tears, and this is what he describes happened next. I continued to kneel by that couch. Long after the tears had dried and prayer was finished, I noticed as I remained there, things felt different. Nothing ecstatic or noisy, nothing high-powered or sensational. I just felt different. As I examined that feeling, I became aware of strength in my limbs and the objects before my eyes. I saw, I felt, I heard. Was it possible? Was the cloud finally gone? Had my world come alive again? Well, he continues writing. I stood and moved carefully at first. The feeling, the sensation, the awareness, the strength, was it real? Was it back to stay? I began thanking and praising God, singing and laughing. I put, my shoes, put on my shoes and ran down the hillside, more falling than running. One of my deacons was there. I shouted to him, Jerry, I'm all right. Thank you for praying. He looked bewildered. I continued to walk with vigor the full three miles around the lake. I sang, I cried, I laughed, I prayed, I quoted scripture, I talked to the birds, I talked to the trees. To this day, I'm grateful no one else saw me. Well, <laughs> oh, What happened? seems the same thing that happened to david the lord has heard my prayer my brothers and sisters in times of trouble and sickness listen you should seek medical help we believe in medicine the bible teaches us the validity of medicine we think medicine is a gift from god and by the way even in times of sadness listen sometimes christians say stupid things i don't know if you realize that our bodies are fallen. Part of your body is your brain. Mental illness comes from the brain. We are all the chemicals, I'm not a doctor clearly, but all, everything that's in there is not working right. So sometimes even for sadness, medicine is a gift from God. Do not let Christians make you feel bad. If you need to take medicine for despair in your life. I I wish William Cooper lived in the time. Clearly there was something wrong medically with that man. I also understand that we believe in biblical counseling. In fact, we believe it so much this church has set aside thousands of dollars to provide scholarships for those in our church who need some type of biblical therapy and do not have the means to, to pay for it. We believe in all of that. But understand that our help ultimately comes from God himself. I don't care what your sickness is. I don't care what your sadness is. Our trust is in not the little pill that you take or the thing dropping through the the IV. Our hope is in God. That's where we place our hope. And I think God has power over it all. Christ walked this earth, and what there wasn't a disease in which He did not heal. He reversed the ravages of sin, and His healing ministry is a picture of the redemption to come. It was a little first fruits. When one day He will return and make the world perfect, and we'll never suffer again. And though not always, I think God continues to still heal, and I think He sometimes does it miraculously. I think often he does it through medicine. I think sometimes it's progressive. I think sometimes it's immediate. I think he does it in response to our prayer. Heal, listen to David, heal me O Lord. We as a church must pray as David shows us. let pray for ourselves, we pray for our brothers and sisters. In fact, in light of this passage and in light of what seems to be the serious plague of sickness that is befalling the members of this church, in recent months and years, the elders are calling for our church on Wednesday, September 19th, to fast, to gather to pray in this building, specifically for the health issues of those in our congregation. And you're going to hear more about that in the coming days. We hope that you can be part of that, whether you're sick or whether you're not, that you would gather out of love for your brother and sister and that we would echo David's prayer, heal, oh God. We're going to do that about three weeks from now. But please understand, for the Christian, there comes a time when healing in this life doesn't come. But the healing doesn't come in this life. just so that we can be healed in the life to, to come after this one. And so as we end, I I want to remind you, even as we think about sickness and and sadness, that this life is not all there is. And that those who have fully trusted in Christ will be healed forever. Right? There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more tears. We're promised. And yet those who do not trust in Christ will experience quite the opposite. They will endure an eternity of sadness and misery. And misery. And that's why I think probably sickness is sometimes good for the non-believer. Lewis said that, that, that sufferings were blockades on the road to hell, right? That, that, that sickness comes as, as a way for God to get your attention, that you need to, to repent and place your faith in Jesus before it's too late, that you can find God, you can find the ultimate salvation. You know, David there in verse four, he prays, save me, O God. I think he's talking about his physical illness, but, but that points to, to a, an even greater salvation. Right, a deeper salvation, an eternal salvation. Are you saved? How would you answer that? Have you ever prayed like David, Save me, O oh Lord? Not from my sickness, but from my sin, from my rebellion. God is just waiting for that prayer. And maybe even now in your heart, God would convict you of your sin by the Holy Spirit, and you would cry out, save me. And I'm telling you, you come to him with the empty hand of faith. He will not only save you, he will heal you. In eternity, forever and ever. You see, and he'll do it through Christ, because Christ was the healer who wasn't healed. And Christ was the deliverer who wasn't delivered. And Christ was the savior who wasn't saved. I don't know if you read verse five or end here, but something seems amiss in verse five where David's praise, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David says, no one remembers you when they're dead, God. He says, the dead don't sing your praise. Well, my friends, we know because of the nature of the Bible, it's a progressive revelation, we know that in fact the dead will praise God because the dead don't stay dead, they come alive. The Bible is revealed to us progressively. So for instance, in Genesis three, we hear about a seed of the woman who will come and slay the serpent, but the serpent will bite him at the same time. We have no idea what that means until we get to Jesus and we actually see how it it all works its way out. Well, those in David's day, they believed in a life after death, but they weren't certain what it was like. They were even unsure whether there would be praise. Well, it's not until the Lord comes that, that we learn of the glorious life to come. It's not until He dies for sin and sinners that we see Him raised from the dead as the first fruits of the resurrection. And we know that our resurrected bodies will, will be like Him if we trust in Him. You see, though, well, I just want, you to, I want to end on this thing. For the Christian, it's a win win. Right, we might get healed now, but my friends, we're certainly gonna get healed then if we're not healed now, right? And so we're either healed here or we're healed in the hereafter, but either way, we're be healed. Either way, all of us will be taken from the sickbed. Either, either, either way, all of us will be well in our soul. And in the end, it will no longer be aspirational. When you and I sing, perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my Savior, am happy and blessed. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Our Father, we are thankful for the work of Christ and his great salvation for us. Father, life is hard. The Lord said, even in this world, you have trouble. We have trouble. We ask you to work in kindness and tenderness, even as we consider from first, Second Corinthians this morning that you would comfort those who are afflicted. We pray that for our church. There are so many here that need your touch. And we are eager to pray for their healing. But our hope ultimately lies in the healing to come. We have hope, even in dark days, that one day we shall walk into eternity, and all will be well forever and ever. We thank you for that great assurance. And now, even as we leave, we pray that hope will be in our hearts, and you will carry us through this week, as we are mindful of one another, ministering to each other as we follow our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.